0: different in those days we had the annual flower show the agricultural show the lagoon had water in it the shire council hadn't been amalgamated but the strangler changed reedy forever it was dark days for reedy creek when the southern slope strangler turned
1: up hi and welcome to this episode of season three of ear movies murder Ballads. In 2022, Ear Movies was awarded a couple of prizes and nominated for a few more. Not that I'm super competitive in the creative space, but it's nice to be recognised. I think the calibre of the readers says something about the quality of the show too. Like Catherine McClements, for instance. Catherine has a long history in Australian screen and theatre, and her reading of this story set in a 1970s Australian country town in the group of a serial killer was spot on. Oh, a quick warning, this story discusses some sensitive subjects. Please be mindful of your own mental health and reach out for help if you need to. And now, here's Catherine reading Live and Let Die. Live and Let Die.
0: I was looking through the old photo albums today with Casey and Cherida, my granddaughters. There's something about holding the books in our hands and pausing at the interesting shots. I've printed out a selection so they're up to date, but it's the old ones the kids like looking at. Today we stopped at a photo of Cindy. The only one I have, as it happens. Cindy was smiling and wearing her signature blue coat. I don't know exactly when it was taken. I should have written a date on it. It would have been before she went to uni. The early 80s. We'd gone to primary school together, then Reedy Creek High. We'd hang out in the library after school. She was mad on reading. She bought books from the local Vinnies for 10 or 20 cents each. She had shelves full of them. We started on Ena Blyton, then she quickly left me behind and moved on to Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes, Father Brown and Dorothy L Sayers. I preferred romances as I got older, but she stayed hooked on crime. At one stage, I even thought she might join the police. But it was the writing she said she loved, not the crime-solving. Then she went away to uni, I got with Jonesy, I took a job at Permuans around the same time. I still have both. Jonesy hasn't changed much, but over the years, Permuans became a Franklin's, then a Safeway, then an IGA, then a Bilo, now it's a Coles. I only do a couple of shifts a week these days. It's more social than anything, something to get me out of the house. Back when I started, I was happy just to have some work. Unemployment was pretty high, unless you had your family property to work on or your parents own a business. There weren't many jobs around. Quite a few kids moved to Sydney. Cindy's parents, Mr and Mrs Reynolds, owned the Reedy Creek Gazette. Newspapers weren't the kind of places you could just start working in, which is why Cindy went to Sydney to study. Then she came back to Reedy. It surprised me, really. She was a smart kid and pretty. Who'd want to come back to the sticks after living in Sydney? But even then, the writing was on the wall for family-run papers. Her parents knew, Cindy did too. Even I knew it. The larger companies like Fairfax and the Packers were buying them all up. The one in Beggarah lost too much money and just closed down. In McLaren Vale, the owner died one day and the paper carked it with him. It just never came out again. The Reedy Creek Gazette was one of the better ones, though. One afternoon down at the lagoon, Cindy told me that the big companies had made their initial offers, but her parents had turned them down. They knew they'd be back, though. The town was different in those days. We had the annual flower show, the agricultural show, the lagoon had water in it, the shire council hadn't been amalgamated. But the Strangler changed Reedy forever. It was dark days for Reedy Creek when the Southern Slope Strangler turned up. His first victim was Danny DeVries, who ran the Golden Fleece at the end of town. When he was found dead in his office, people were naturally shocked. But they weren't too upset. Everyone knew he bashed his wife, Wendy. They became upset after some of the later murders, but there weren't many tears shed over Danny. I didn't go to the funeral, but Mum did, and she said Wendy stood there still as a statue for the whole service. Wendy had been in hospital at the time of Danny's death, so she was never considered a suspect. She was only little anyway, and Danny was a big man. He'd been in his office late at night. The servo usually closed between 10 and midnight, so it was common for him to be alone then. He was always drunk. Someone had come up behind him and put a rope around his neck and hauled on it until he died. I think most people suspected his death had something to do with how he treated Wendy. She'd been practically kept like a prisoner, so it wasn't as if she was having an affair or anything like that. And she certainly didn't have any knights in shining armor to stand up for her. There was one thing that had the police bamboozled. They found a piece of a torn postcard tucked into Danny's top pocket. It looked like a European city. There was a theory that Danny's death had nothing at all to do with Wendy, but was related to his time in the war. There was a rumour he'd been a Nazi sympathiser and that a special operative had been sent over from Holland to kill him. Reedy could get pretty boring. (laughs) It was just another small town on the highway. This was before the freeway, so we still got the traffic then. But after Danny's death, it became exciting for a little while. I remember getting to work and reading the paper and discussing the latest theory about who it was. Even Maggie Stackpole joined in. She was our manager and would usually be on our case if we were gossiping when we should be stacking shelves and pricing. But she loved talking about it as much as the rest of us. Actually, looking back, she really warmed up after that. She became more like one of us what happened next brought us even closer. This was when the strangler struck again. And this time, the motive for the killing wasn't nearly as clear. We didn't know how much things were going to change. I don't mean just in Reedy. I mean around us in general. Everything changes all the time, but in small amounts until you realise there's been a big change. (laughs) looking back now, you could see what was happening, how Australia was becoming different. Oh gee, the whole world, I guess. But we didn't really notice it then, because it was just one day at a time. I sat on the till in Permuans, ringing up each item. It was 9 to 5.30, except on Saturday mornings and Thursday nights. The groceries went into large brown paper bags and were carried out to the car boots by Lyle. The store was generally pretty boring. We all had our own aisles. Mine was the ladies' things. Soaps, deodorants, hair products. It was the smallest and closest to the till, so I'd be the first one there when a customer came in. If there were no customers and I had nothing to do once my shelves were in order, Cindy would sometimes come in and we'd read Dolly together and talk. The excitement of Danny DeVries' death quickly faded away. There wasn't much more to talk about. The subject was still raised occasionally, but to be honest, we'd run out of things to say about it. Then Leon Davis was found dead in his kitchen and the whole mood picked up again. The detectives returned, reporters from the city, busybodies from nearby towns. It was like the show was on. The motel dusted off its no vacancy sign. The servo had cars in it. There were groups of people standing in the street talking. The Paragon milk bar was sometimes full. Danny was an outsider who happened to live in Reedy, but Leon was one of us. He drove the school bus, so we all knew him. He coached the under 12s. There was a lot of sad kids after he died. He was strangled from behind as well. He was sitting at his dinner table. Once again, there didn't appear to have been a forced entry. This wasn't a total surprise. Not many of us locked our doors in those days. You could have snuck into any one of our houses back then. There was another torn postcard. Police said it was a different card to the one found in Danny's shirt. There were no fingerprints, and as far as they could tell, there was nothing stolen, no sign of violence. The cops stayed around for a few weeks. Mr Reynolds, Cindy's dad, was mates with Donnie Davis, the local cop. So we weren't surprised at how well the paper was covering the investigation. Top of the list was trying to find the link between Leon's death and Danny's. Leon lived alone so no one suspected him of bashing his missus like we had with Danny. The torn postcards showed they were joined somehow though. We all turned up for Leon's funeral. We had sponge cake and soft drink in the church hall after. Scones too, if I remember. Sausage rolls cut into threes? (laughs) There wasn't much reminiscing, to be honest. The talk was more about who had done it and why, and would they strike again? The next day, the police conducted a thorough search of the bus depot and found that Leon had a stash of pornographic magazines. These days you can apparently turn on the internet and see anything you want. Back in Reedy in those days, there wasn't any porn. Unless you counted the Playboy and Penthouse down the back of the (laughs) newsagents. Jonesy once came back from Sydney with a copy of Rybald. I could barely look at it. I just wondered about the girls. How could you let yourself be photographed like that? Chucked it in the incinerator when he was at work. (laughs) The magazines Leon had were apparently even worse though. They had pictures of animals and children. We realised that Leon might not have been the nice guy we all thought he was. That's when Trishy Davis came forward. We didn't know it was her at the time. The Gazette reported her as name withheld, who had a relationship with the deceased since she was 14. tried to figure out who it was. But it only came out that it was Trishy at the reunion a few years back. She was already sick by then and died not long afterwards. It stuffed her up, she said. Because of it, she'd been a drunk and smoked all her life. She blamed Leon. She reckoned that she wasn't the only one he'd gotten to. She swore blind there were at least three others. She said she had nothing to do with killing him and we believed her. It was kind of a deathbed confession, so she had no reason to lie. Looking back to those days, when I was in my late teens, everything seemed so bright. Now I realise that underneath, for quite a few people, it wasn't bright at all. In fact, it was quite dark. Mr Reynolds always reminded me of an English vicar. He wasn't fat, but he was rounded. That's the polite way to say it. His cheeks were full, he had a warm smile, he had oval glasses and usually wore grey cardigans with his grey trousers. He was nothing like my dad. I guess you'd say my dad was rough around the edges. He was a truckie who'd never looked after himself. Loved a beer, got too wild with Mum sometimes. To tell the truth, I felt safer at the Reynolds than I did at home. Not that Dad would have done anything to me, but when he and Mum were rowing, it wasn't very nice. I don't think I ever heard Mr and Mrs Reynolds say a cross word to each other. She was such a soft lady. Even though she'd just reached 45, her hair was already silver-white. Mr Reynolds seemed to have embraced age as well. He had a comb over. I always wondered what it was like for him in the shower, when the truth of his hairstyle would be hanging long down on one side of his head, with nothing on the other. (laughs) When I stayed over at the Reynolds, we ate breakfast at the table. At my place, we had meals on our knees in front of the TV, morning, noon and night. Mrs Reynolds always made us a full breakfast. Cereals, not the old cheapo ones we had at home, bacon, eggs and baked beans. It was a good choice of jams and spreads. There was a toaster on the table. You'd put your bread in, and you didn't have to press down or anything. It would slowly sink, like a submarine going under. A few minutes later, it would rise again at the same stately speed. Elegant toast. Put it this way, I wasn't surprised Mr Reynolds was rounded. They were interested in me, although I think they were interested in everyone, to be honest. Maybe it was their reporter's instinct to try and find a story. I was up there one morning after Cindy had come back from uni and they asked me what I thought about the strangler. I didn't have a clue, of course, but told them something I'd heard Maggie at the shop mention about how strong he must be. The next day, I read an opinion piece Mr Reynolds had written where he said something like, Discussions in the town reflect the belief the strangler must be very strong. It was my words, accurately reported. He didn't try and pass it off as his own conclusion. I felt like I was famous. (laughs) The reason people had started to think the strangler was strong was because next time he struck, he killed two people. Our civic leader, I guess you call him, wasn't a mayor. Reedy wasn't big enough to have a mayor. Instead we had Maury Patterson, the Shire President. We all knew he was corrupt. It was a town joke. He wasn't take all the money and spend it on prostitutes corrupt. He just made sure his friends got all the good council business. Mr Reynolds had tried to interview Maury about who'd been awarded the new road maintenance contract. It was a big deal because usually in those days road crews were all council employees. Mr Reynolds said he was sure Murray must have been paid a big backhander. But Murray just laughed him off. He said he was too busy to discuss it. Murray's idea of being too busy meant lunches at the commercial hotel that stretched until closing time. Mr Reynolds was spreading marmalade on his toast as he told us. Too busy, he repeated, shaking his head. Mrs Reynolds then turned to Mr Reynolds and said, Well, John, of course he's busy. All that pork won't barrel itself. They both laughed quite a lot at that. (laughs) A few weeks later, Morrie and his best mate, Wes, were both killed. Morrie's wife, Anne, was staying at her sister's in Forster for a few days. Morrie and Wes had apparently got on it. There were beer bottles everywhere. Wes had been strangled from behind while sitting in a chair. Police speculated that Mori had walked in from the toilet and seen Wes's body. They said that the killer must have been waiting for him behind the curtains. Maury was about 60, a lifelong smoker with a huge belly. He wasn't the fittest of blokes, but he'd apparently put up a decent fight. The coffee table and some china were smashed and someone's boot had gone through one of the glass doors in the display cabinet. The time of death was put at just after midnight. But the bodies weren't discovered until Maury failed to turn up at his office and the police went up to his house around 9.30 the next morning. That had left plenty of time for the killer to have cleaned up any clues as to their identity. The only thing they left behind, of course, were two torn postcards the strangler had struck again. until the appearance of the Strangler. Probably the roughest thing Donnie Davis had to deal with in Reedy Creek was shooting the occasional stray dog, putting a few kids in the cells for drunken disorderly – they were never charged, he'd just call their parents in the morning – and contributing the odd stern word if he was called to cases of domestic violence. The actions of the Strangler were a whole new league for him. I think the whole town was affected by Morrie's death wasn't because Maury was well-liked. He was commonly resented, actually. But just because so many people knew him. Wes wasn't missed in the same way. He had missing teeth and a nicotine-stained beard and been a bit scary to most of us kids. His temper was legendary. Maury was a figurehead of the town, though. His murder was all anyone talked about for weeks. Jonesy and I had been together for about three years by this time. Our romance didn't set the world on fire, but that was common enough for Reedy. He was someone to go to the flicks in Yass with, to take me down to the Royal on a Friday night, get the blood rushing on the bench seat of his HR afterwards. I kind of forgot about Jonesy for a while when Dave Pierce walked into the shop, though. He was a reporter from the Daily Mirror. He was tall, wore a suit and tie, and had fair hair that was a bit long. He even used deodorant. (laughs) It was his smile that got me, though. Good and evil in a single grin. Jonesy was in trouble the moment I laid eyes on Dave. I was on the register and he came right up to me, leaned in close across the counter. Oh, he smelled bloody good, though, if I'm being honest. He asked me how long I'd lived in town, straight out. Didn't introduce himself or even ask my name. He had a pad and pen out, which I thought was strange. He had that smile though. I knew Maggie was watching us from the back of the shop, but I didn't care. I told him I'd been here all my life. That's when he told me he worked for the Mirror. I don't think it impressed me as much as he expected. If I'm honest, I wasn't a big newspaper reader. And when I did read, it was always the Gazette, same as most of us. He actually laughed when I told him that. A bit mean, in some ways. Like the Gazette wasn't worth reading. Typical city bloke, I thought. Although I had that dreamy smile. I had a customer then and told him I was having my lunch break at twelve if he wanted to ask me anything else. He was waiting when I came outside. I only had 45 minutes. I always started with a smoke. I like Winnie Blues, but he offered me one of his Benson and hedges. I took it too. Don't really know why. I never really liked BHs. Jonesy was lamb marking, so I hadn't seen him for weeks might make him a bit jealous if he heard I was talking to another bloke. So I took Dave down to the beer garden at the Royal. He had a steak and I had a chicken palmy. They did the best chicken palmies at the Royal. Still do. Not that Janzie and I have been down there for yonks. So anyway, I told Dave some stuff, like how I'd heard Maury and Wes arguing. It wasn't really an argument, more of a heated discussion. Dave asked if I wanted another midi of Shandy. I said no, of course. I had to get back to work, but he bought me one anyway. I told him how they'd come into the store and that Wes was already riled up. He was going on about the 250 bucks that he'd never see again. I thought Maury must owe it, but it turned out it was Mr Reynolds who owed it. They'd gone shares in a Greyhound, but Wes reckoned Mr Reynolds had never paid up. I was feeling a bit woozy after the second drink. I told Dave how that didn't sound like Mr Reynolds. He wasn't a betting man, for one thing. He didn't like animal cruelty, so I couldn't ever see him involved in greyhound racing. They even used live rabbits to train them in those days. And Mr Reynolds drove a new Commodore. He updated it every year. If he'd have owed $250, he could have paid it easily. Dave walked me back up to the shop, and even put his hand on my waist when we went to cross the road. The gutters were those high sandstone ones in that part of the main street and I was feeling dizzy, so I didn't mind his hand there. Then Jonesy's father drove past us. I knew where to get back to Jonesy. That was all right with me. He needed a bit of a kick up the backside, to be honest. We had a girls' night out a few weeks later. It was Becky Fraser's 21st. She was a large girl, a bit buck-teethed in those days, although she had them fixed up a few years back. She's still big, though. (laughs) Cindy came to the drinks night. I don't know how she knew about Becky's birthday. Maybe Becky had invited her, although I don't remember them being very close. The opposite, actually, now I put my mind to it. Becky could be quite sensitive and Cindy could tease. It wasn't a good combination. But that was at school and now it was three years later and we were the survivors, weren't we? I mean, we were the ones still in Reedy. Cindy looked good when she came in, high-waisted jeans. We all wore them back then, Ugg boots. Can't remember a blouse. But I remember her coat. It was the one she loved, the big navy blue fleecy one. I remember it well because I have it now, although I never wear it. I got the feeling that Cindy wasn't used to drinking. She struggled to keep up with us at first, but then suddenly she was racing ahead. Soon she was well gone. I'd never seen her like that. Not at any of the discos or socials we'd had. She was really flying. That's when I told her I loved her coat. She took it off then and there and offered it to me. Oh, I remember now. She had a pink skivvy underneath. I told her not to be silly and I got her to put the coat back on because it was a cold night. We had a smoke and she spewed. I walked her home. I thought if we walked she might not be too bad when we had to face her parents. Mr and Mrs Reynolds were grateful to me. They even invited me up for breakfast the next day. I was supposed to meet Jonesy but I told them I'd come to theirs instead. At the time I was sharing a flat with Carly Foster about two blocks off the main street. She'd gone to the Gold Coast with her fiancé, so I knew she wasn't home. I walked back by myself. I wasn't worried, even with a strangler around. This was Reedy Creek, and I'd been walking around by myself since I was 14. Not far from my place, though, I heard a loud crack behind me. And it scared the shit out of me. I thought it might be Jonesy being stupid. He got a good laugh out of doing things like that. It wasn't Jonesy, though. It was Dave Pearce, the reporter. Looked like he'd been drinking too. What are you doing? I asked. I thought he'd laugh. That's what Jonesy would have done. But Dave looked upset. I'm so sorry, he said. I thought you would have heard me. I've, I've been following you since Argyle Street. He came up to me, I lit a little ciggy. He had dragon's breath in the cold air. We stood under a street light. "'Why are you creeping around at this time of night?' I asked. I passed over my smoke, and he took a draw. "'Just getting a feel for Reedy Creek, I guess,' he said. "'And it's too quiet in my hotel room. "'There was a bunch of girls went past about ten minutes ago. "'I thought I'd check them out, you know. "'Never found them, though. "'Becky Fraser's birthday,' I explained. "'Didn't miss much. "'I'm glad I ran into you,' he said.' was late. But even though I was pissed off with Jonesy, I wouldn't go behind his back. You found the strangler yet? I asked, changing the subject. He shook his head. That local cop of yours is thick as two short planks. Either that, or he's covering something up. Nah, Donnie's just stupid, I said. The D's aren't much better, Dave said. I reckon if they were city detectors, it'd be solved by now. But there must have been half the town through the mayor's place before they took any fingerprints. He's not the mayor. He's the Shire President, I corrected him. Was the Shire President, he corrected me. I passed in the smoke again, and he had another draw. Then a cat jumped out from under a bush, and we were both startled. I grabbed his hand. I don't know if he took it the wrong way, but he held it back tight. Must admit, it felt nice. He put his other hand round the back of my neck. I felt different to the way Jonesy did it. I didn't mean to do anything, but he kissed me. One quick pash was all it was, then I pulled away. I laughed him off. He looked at me. I guess he was wondering if I wanted to do more. I let go of his hand. i better go, I said. He nodded. You in Reedy for much longer? I asked. I don't know why I asked that. I'm going to Canberra tomorrow, but I'll be back Tuesday. I'll come and see you at the store." I looked down the road. The moon was going behind some clouds. I turned back to Dave, and he was still looking at me. Well, night, I said. (laughs) He pulled me towards him and went to kiss me again, but I turned my face and only felt his lips on my cheek. Then I went down my driveway. He watched me to the doorway, which I thought was nice and polite. I turned back and waved, he waved back, and then I went inside. I didn't think that much of it, to be honest. It was only one quick pash. Jonesy would be ropeable if he found out, but he wasn't going to find out. I'd only ever kissed Jonesy before, so it was kind of nice to be kissed by someone else. Not that I planned to make a habit of it. And Jonesy's not the warmest bloke in the world. I liked having someone else a bit interested in me. Someone different. Someone a bit exotic, I suppose. Cindy rang me early. I hadn't had a coffee because we were out of milk, so I was lying on the couch reading a magazine, thinking about going up to the shop. She reminded me to come up for breakfast. Our fridge resembled a cross between a ghost town and a science experiment, so it was easy for me to say yes. It was a classic Reynolds breakfast. Cindy looked pretty bright considering how she'd been the night before. We ended up talking about the murders, of course. That's all anyone in Reedy talked about at the time. What are the current theories, Mrs Reynolds asked. Well, we all think it's someone from out of town, I said. Maggie says it has to be, otherwise why start now? If you were a multi-murderer, why suddenly begin with Danny and go on from there? Why not kill him years ago? It would have saved Wendy a lot of grief, that's for sure. Mrs Reynolds wiped her mouth with a serviette. But how would the killer know which houses to go to, she asked. It looks like he knew the victims. Maybe he was even welcomed inside. It just doesn't make sense. I guess murder never makes sense unless you're the murderer, I said. Perhaps he's just good at sneaking around, Mrs Reynolds said all the time Mr Reynolds was looking at us. This was normal for him. He'd explained it once as his newspaper man brain, listening for stories. I knew he was figuring out if there's anything from what we were saying that he could put in the next day's paper. Maggie says the strangler has to slip up soon, I said, that he'll leave a clue behind that he doesn't mean to, a real clue that they'll catch him with, not a bit of torn postcard. She reckons everyone slips up eventually, "'That's an interesting theory,' Mr Reynolds said. "'Here's the headline. "'Police wait for inevitable mistake.' "'You could rehash details of the entire series of murders "'with no new information at all under a leader like that,' Missus Reynolds said. "'Mr Reynolds smiled. "'You're too cynical, my love,' he said, "'standing and buttoning up his cardigan. "'I'm going to thin the runner beans,' he added. "'He took his terry-toweling hat and walked outside.' What are you two girls up to today? Mrs Reynolds asked us as we gathered up the breakfast things. She took a plate from me. No, Darl, you're our guest. She had the nicest smile. Cindy came back to mine and we listened to the radio and read TV week. Jonesy rang and wanted me to come over, but I'd already promised Cindy we'd go down the Royal later. Jonesy wasn't too happy about that, but I told him I'd make it up to him next weekend. He grunted and hung up. Manly was playing the Steelers later. He'd be okay. Cindy and I had a really fun night. She could be pretty entertaining when she wanted to. She told me about living in Sydney. It sounded really different to Reedy. She said she was going overseas. She asked me if I wanted to go with her. I laughed. (laughs) I didn't have the money for anything like that. Carly was still away, so Cindy stayed over and slept in her room. I reckon it was lucky she did. When she went home in the morning, she found both her parents dead in their beds. It was Mum who rang me, and naturally I called Cindy straight away, but she was too upset to talk. I told her I'd come up later. The news spread through Reedy like a bushfire on a windy day. I'd had half a dozen phone calls before I'd even started getting dressed for work. I had a shower and my head was spinning. One thing was weird. My bathroom sink had a stain in it that wasn't there the night before. Black like something had been burned in it. I soon forgot about it though. The Reynolds murders was all anyone talked about that day. One of the main things was that the killer had changed tactics. The Reynolds weren't strangled. They were drugged. What do you do after news like that? I'd had breakfast with them just the day before. I remembered Mr Reynolds filling his pipe. The smell of Mrs Reynolds' scent. I felt so sad. I started bawling and couldn't stop for about 10 minutes. Then I was late for work and had to put makeup on because my eyes were so puffy. Maggie didn't seem to notice. She'd been crying too. Even Lyndall got misty-eyed when we discussed it. That girl was rumored to have a heart of stone she teared up again when I told her about the breakfast I'd had there. Police and reporters were everywhere. I tried calling Cindy again at lunchtime, but the phone went to the answering machine. It was weird to hear Mr Reynolds's voice asking me to leave a message. I told Cindy that I hoped she was alright and to ring me anytime if she needed to. I went up after work. Donnie Davis was guarding the front door. He told me it was a crime scene and I couldn't enter. I thought he was pretty gruff. I think he was upset that yet more people had been killed in his town. I explained I was Cindy's friend and wanted to see her. He warmed up when I said she'd been at mine the night before. Oh, you're that friend, he said. She's down at the Gazette. She's getting the paper out tomorrow as a tribute to her parents. I went to see her. She didn't have time to talk, but she hugged me. I nearly started crying again, and I could see she was close to tears as well. Then she pushed me away. I'll come down to yours later, she said. Can I stay again? I don't want to go back to mine. Of course, I told her. I went to the Paragon, had some chips. There's a payphone outside, and I even tried calling Jonesy. But I hung up before anyone answered. He'd want me to go over, and I'd already promised Cindy. I was walking down the street when Dave pulled up alongside me. He had a Salika, Nice car, in my opinion. Want a lift, he said. I'm good, thanks, I said, shaking my head. I went over to him. He was smiling at me. Get in, he said, opening the door. I have something to tell you. We drove to the lagoon. I don't know why I said to go there. I didn't want to take him home, I suppose. What if Jonesy dropped in? Unlikely, but maybe not after the latest deaths. Anyway, it was just easier to talk to Dave there. He parked at the end of the lane. It was nice there at that time of day. He pulled out a bottle of Bundy. Gonna help me with this? he asked. Got any Coke? I asked. In the back, he told me. He gave me the rum and popped the boot. I opened it. Inside was a bag of ice, a bottle of Coke and some cups. "'You could get a girl in lots of trouble with this,' I said, laughing. "'Get the blanket as well, darl,' he called back. We walked down near the water. We sat close, but he was respectful. He asked me if I'd been up at the Reynolds, and I told him a bit about it. He was a reporter, so I didn't want to tell him too much about Cindy. I knew he'd use it. I got upset at one point and started to blub, and he put his arm around me. I felt safe with him, you know?' He could listen to me in a way that Jonesy never did. Like a big sponge soaking up all my words. Half the time they bounced off Jonesy and I'd have to repeat what I was saying because he was thinking of something else. Dave wasn't like that. And of course, there was that amazing smile. What did you have to tell me? I asked him. Huh? When you picked me up, you said you had something to tell me, I reminded him. He grinned again. I must admit, I melted a bit. <laughs> he poured me another drink. I was a bit stronger than I usually liked it, but it had been a hard day. To tell the truth, I didn't mind. I was feeling pretty relaxed for the first time since I'd heard about Cindy's parents. He put his hand on my knees as he began to talk. It felt comforting, if I'm honest. You know the Reynolds were in deep financial doo-doo, he said. What does that mean? I asked. Country chicks, he laughed. It means they owed a lot of money. The Gazette's been going downhill for years. But they're always cashed up, I said. They buy a new car every year. Looks can be deceiving, he said. They've borrowed and they've borrowed and they've borrowed. I don't know how they kept it up for so long. I didn't know what to say. It didn't sound like the kind of thing Mr Reynolds would do. But it's turned around recently, Dave said. I know this girl at the bank, see. Sweet. Reminds me of you, in a way. She looked it up. She shouldn't have, but she did it as a favour to me. It's only been the last few months that the paper has started to make a decent profit. The last few months, I asked. Yeah, he said. The last few months since the arrival of the strangler. That's when people started buying the paper again. I'd finished my second drink already. They were going down really well. My head was spinning, but not just from the alcohol, from what he was telling me as well. Are you suggesting Mr. Reynolds had something to do with the deaths? I asked. His hand was on my thigh now. H O T M was what we used to say in school hand on thigh merchant. But Dave's hand felt warm. kind of wished I wasn't in a skirt, though. I should have worn jeans. All I'm saying is there was a motive, he said. Not Mr Reynolds, I said. Did you know he was SAS in the war, he asked me. What's SAS? I asked. He made me another drink. Special Air Service. Like the Commandos, he said. I checked out his record when I was in Canberra. He took part in some very serious operations. I thought those records were secret, I said. I know a chick who works there too. He smiled again. I laughed. (laughs) Look at you, I said, a girl in every port. His hand had moved to the back of my neck. It felt really good. I love it when a guy's hand is just around the back of my ears, tickling a little bit. It was hard to focus on what he was saying, though. Pulled away a little bit. You're saying that Mr Reynolds killed those people to increase sales of his newspaper? Then how come he's dead now? And Mrs Reynolds, too. I think someone found out, he said. I think someone was on to them. He leaned forward and we pashed. It was even better than the first time. He laid me back and we kissed more. His hands slid inside my blouse and he undid my bra. I felt so free. I liked what I was feeling. But then I remembered Jonesy. We should stop, I said. Oh, come on, darling, said you like it. Yeah, I like it, I admitted, but no. His hand was on my thigh again, sliding right up high. No, Dave, I said, no. He wouldn't stop. I said, no! Afterwards, he drove me back into town. I didn't talk to him. He stopped at my place and I got out and slammed the door. See you around, Dal, he called out, like everything was fine. It wasn't fine. The strangler only killed one more person. Dave alone in his hotel room later that night, drugged, just like Mr. and Mrs. Reynolds. The manager of the hotel found him the next morning when he hadn't checked out. Police were baffled once again. As usual, there was no sign of forced entry, no fingerprints, nothing at all to indicate who'd come into his room, given him something to drink. Watched as he laid back down, closed his eyes, that beautiful smile now frozen on his face forever. I'd cried a lot after he dropped me off. I showered for like about one hour. It felt like an hour. Our hot water usually ran out after about 20 minutes, so it was at least 20 minutes anyway. Cindy came around like she said she would, and now we both had something to cry about. She was the only one I ever told what happened and I made her promise not to tell anyone else. That's when she gave me a beautiful blue coat. She made me a cup of tea, and not long afterwards I fell asleep on the couch. I woke up when I heard the door closing. She was coming in from outside. "'Where have you been?' I asked. "'Nowhere special,' she said. She put the coat over me, and I went back to sleep. That's the end of the story, really." stayed with Jonesy, but I never told him about that afternoon at the lagoon. There was no point, especially with Dave being dead. Cindy sold the Gazette, got good money for it. She wanted me to come overseas with her. She said she'd shout me, but I was pregnant by then. Last I heard, she was in France. uh, I could have been Spain. The police never found the murderer. Eventually, things in Reedy went back to normal. Dave's family kept pushing for his death to be more thoroughly investigated, but eventually they gave up. I heard recently his mother died. Did Cindy use me as an alibi both nights she went out and killed? Did she put a sedative in my tea and then go out after Dave? I guess it's possible. But she was nice believe she'd kill her own parents. Even if she realized they were sociopaths who were murdering people just to make their newspaper profitable. I wondered if she'd come across a stack of torn postcards they used as red herrings. Had she burned them leaving the weird mark I found in my sink? But killing her mum and dad would mean she was a bigger sociopath than they were maybe she was going to stop with them until I told her what Dave had done to me. Is that why he became the last victim? That was all so long ago. So much has happened since then. Kids. Now grandkids. Jonesy has been a good dad to Bailey. Bailey has Dave's smile. But I never told Jonesy that. (laughs)
1: That was Catherine McClements reading Live and Let Die. It was recorded on Gadigal land at King Sound Studios in Surrey Hills, Sydney. Thanks, Nick and Joe. Trevor Brown did the music by did, I mean composed and performed it. Phenomenal. I've been told it's really important to build subscribers, so can you please like the show and follow it on whatever platform you're using to listen to it? It'll make a big difference. Ear Movies are written and produced by me, Simon Luckhurst. Thanks for listening.